every time I sit down at the desk. I know, I look at my flashcard and say, today I'm writing the scene where Bridie has the meeting with the Netflix people or today I'm writing the scene where Alison made a hand transplant recipient. I know it's a good trick to leave your writing in the middle of a scene or even the middle of a sentence to keep you going. I don't do that. I write my scenes. Usually they're around 2,000 or so and I've done them over the two days. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hello, my name is Meredith Jaffe, and I'm thrilled to be back on the Rights for Women convo couch this week and with doing one of my favourite things, of course, which is interviewing fellow authors. Today, I'm speaking with the wonderful Kylie Ladd. Kylie is a practising neuropsychologist, a freelance writer and a novelist. She's, we're going to talk about her new amazing novel, I'll Leave You With This. She's also the author of six novels, including the incredibly successful Into My Arms and The Haunting Thrill the way back which has been optioned for film and I think it's more than optioned now but we can talk about that later. As readers of Kylie's fiction know one of Kylie's gift is writing about complex human relationships and family dynamics and weaving them into a compelling and heartfelt novels and often very funny as well. I'll Leave You With This also has a tragic personal element for Kylie and I'm looking forward to discussing how she took a personal tragedy and elevated it into a work that speaks to many. Kylie Ladd, hello, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a long-time listener of the podcast, so I'm delighted to be a guest of the podcast. Yes, (laughs) such a nice thing to do. So I want to start with setting the scene for the story. So I'll leave you with this sentence around the O'Shea family, the mother, Barbie, and father, Finn. They have five children. We have Alison, Bridie, Daniel, Claire, and Emma. And it opens with a tragic event. Can you just tell us what the tragic event is? The tragic event is the death of Daniel, who is the fourth in the lineup and the only boy in the in the lineup of five. So he has four sisters, and Daniel is. And I'm really not it's not much of a spoiler because yes, you're quite right. The novel opens with this, so this all happens in the first couple of pages. It opens with Daniel walking to a meeting in the Sydney CBD. He's a fashion designer. He is meeting with a client that's potentially going to be a big deal. He's excited. It's a lovely Sydney spring day. He's on his way towards the rocks when he hears what he thinks is fireworks, but it actually turns out to be gunshots and he unwittingly walks into a terrorist situation in, in, in or around Martin Place. It's not quite near where the, uh, the Lint Cafe was, although I do reference that in the book. And Daniel is killed. And that's really how the book opens with Daniel's death. And then the next bit of the book moves on to three years later. I'm curious as a writer, like these are all these micro decisions that we make. Did you always plan for that to be the opening scene of the story? Was that quite set in your mind? That's when you would reveal that Daniel had died? 
I am a massive planner, as you probably know. I plan every little thing. I plan every microcosm of my novels. But I must say, I didn't plan that. And that's what I always say when people say, oh, I could never be a planner because it'd be boring. You wouldn't know what would happen. Sorry, you'd always know what was going to happen and therefore it'd be boring. But you still don't. You can plan until the cows come home and then something surprises you. I actually wrote the, the the prologue of the book, which is about four or five pages in the book, and that is Daniel going to his meeting and being killed. I wrote it as a warm-up exercise, Meredith. I didn't, I just thought I'm going to have to get into this story. I am also a very insecure and nervous writer, and I find starting anything hard, I find it hard starting work each day, and never mind starting a whole new novel. And I wrote it, I, I did that thing, I have to trick myself a lot to write, and I thought, just going to write a bit of the backstory so I know what happened to Daniel and then I'll weave it in somewhere later in the book. And it came out, of all the parts of the novel, those first five pages were hardly touched. There was barely any editing to it whatsoever. And there's a lesson in that for me that I just need to relax and tell myself this is just practice, <laughs> this is not for real, and the writing will flow. I had been thinking about that scene for a while in my head, but I didn't plan to start the novel that way. But, of course, once I finished it, I thought, oh, that's the perfect way to start the novel, yeah. Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. That's interesting, isn't it? And opening scenes are always the hardest, aren't they? Because that's what you've got to pull the reader in with. An important element of the story is the dynamic between the sisters and it underpins the plot. So could you just briefly explain, because I'm an only child, so I was really <laughs> impressed with how you did for the four sisters remaining. So can you just explain the dynamic between the four girls, Daniel's sisters? Okay, the four sisters, Alison, Bridie, Claire and Emma, are quite disparate in age. The parents had a plan to have six children, and I actually didn't make this idea up, I got it from a friend's family, that had a plan to have six children and have three sets of two with sizable gaps in between so that each child had a playmate. I won't go into the reasons why, but that was the reasoning with this family. So Alison and Bridie are very close in age. They're only, I think, 14 or 15 months apart And then the next step down was to Claire and Daniel five or six years later. And then there was another step down to Emma another seven years after Claire and Daniel. But for various reasons, they never went on to have the sixth child. So Emma never had her playmate, so to speak. So the sisters are quite, as I said, wide apart in age. I think between Emma and Alison, there's there's 12 years in age. But they're also very different in personality. And so both those things play into the dynamic between them. Alison is your classic oldest sibling, and I can say that as an oldest sibling myself, for she is responsible, she is get the work done, she is organised and practical. Bridie, then the next one who's close to Alison in age, is very different in personality. She's a film director, she's very creative, and she's very self-centred. I had a ball writing Bridie because she's a lot more self-centred, I think, than I am, and I could see how much fun that was. And then Claire, and they're both quite attractive, I guess, physically. Claire, further down the list is less attractive. That sounds horrible to be reducing people like that. But I think it's an also an important part of the dynamic if there's all these discrepancies between the women. Even if Claire wasn't less attractive, it's she's less attractive in her own eyes. And that's the bit that actually matters. It's her perception yeah, 100% of self. Meredith. Her perception of self is, I was, oh, my older sisters are really beautiful, especially Bridie. She's a stunner. And I can't compete with that. So she's always talked, her self-talk, the self-talk is very negative around her physical appearance. You're quite right and that's a really good point. And actually there are a few points in the book where other people suddenly comment on, oh, actually Claire's eyes were beautiful or Mm. such and such because I did want to say to the reader, you know what, she's not a write-off but you're right, this is all her self-talk. 
And part of that too is because Alison and Bridie are very accomplished. Bridie's a film director who has had this incredible cult hit, um, Black Box, which has just taken off years ago before the novel starts, but she's still reaping many royalties and she has a lot of street cred or kudos because of that. And Alison is a, is a top obstetrician in Sydney. In contrast, Claire would see herself as just, and I'm doing the inverted commas, a nurse. She's a very dedicated and wonderful nurse, but yes, she measures herself in relation to her sisters in that way. And Emma, the last sister, has always felt separate from the others because of the age gap. Emma is tiny, short in stature. She's just under five foot and she's bullied at school because of that. And that also sets Emma apart. Unfortunately, that happens at a time in her life when her mother is dying and she doesn't, Emma doesn't feel that she can go to the family with her own problems, that it's enough that their mother is dying at the age of 50 um, of motor neuron disease. So Emma always feels isolated and separate from the other sisters. And that's a really important part of the plot as well, as we know. I'm curious as a writer how you went about defining the girls to be so individual. They're all really well-rounded and quite distinct human beings on the page. Did you Do you do a lot of backstory writing around each character before you put them on the page? Or how do you go about going, I need them to be a certain way to make the plot work, of course, but but what's your process around defining the girls? Yeah, I don't do I don't do any write, backstory writing. When I said earlier about the warm up writing, I never do that sort of stuff. So I should have known that wasn't going to be warm up writing. It was going to be real writing. But you're quite right. There's four sisters, and they need to be really distinct because otherwise it's confusing for the reader, and people toss the book aside after a while if they can't tell who's who. So you've got to have them distinct from the word go. Look, I do a lot of planning, but not so much writing. I I. I spend a lot of time thinking about what their personality characteristics are. I'm smiling because it's just so old school. I have an exercise book and I just make notes as I go along thinking about these people and I pull pictures out of the paper and I go, well, that looks like Alison might look or that looks like how Alison would dress or that looks like Bridie's hair and I stick them into the exercise book and I go back and remind myself I plot a novel probably for two or three months before I start writing. So The characters are in my head for that time. I'm not making them up as I go, so to speak. They're living with me. That said, I only write two days a week, so I'm not someone who's deeply immersed in their work. When I write, I am, but it's just a part of my life. I think that's another reason I plot. So it's there. I know who these people are before I come to the page, if that makes sense. And certainly physically, although I'm always, that's one of my worst attributes, I'm always getting editors saying, I don't know what they look like or... They've all, they all look the same. I'm not good at physical description, so I have to get that down to remind myself. But personality characteristics, but also their quirks, and very importantly too for me was working out each, and with five siblings, this was quite a diagram, working out their relationships with each other, who got on with whom, who who fell into twos or threes or who didn't, who choose to sit next to who at dinner, that sort of thing. That was really important to me because this is a novel about about a sibship, about a sisterhood. And knowing their dynamics before the novel started was really important because I needed to change those dynamics as I went through the novel. It's really interesting. As you mentioned before, the story moves back and forward in time as well as changing points of view from the sisters' Mm -hmm. points of view. And so it creates a really rich tapestry of the story of how the women became the women they are today. And the contemporary thread is fixed around an idea Claire has three years after Daniel dies. The girls have lunch at the restaurant he was walking to on the anniversary of his death every year. And she has this idea and that's part of the novel. What does Claire propose to her sisters? 
She proposes three years after, this is on the third anniversary, as you said, of Daniel's death, she proposes that they search out and find the recipients of his organs that were donated after his death. They knew he was an organ donor. That's not discussed. That whole process is not discussed. And I think that's revealed for the first time that he was an organ donor at that lunch. But obviously the girls all knew that. And Claire says, you know what, we should find those people and be interested in knowing about them. And there's quite a variety of responses to that. Emma is supportive, the younger sister. She thinks that sounds like a good idea. The two older sisters, Alison and Bridie, are appalled. In fact, Alison has quite a visceral reaction to it for a doctor. She is actually made nauseous by the idea and can't think of anything worse and thinks it's utterly ridiculous and why would you want to do something like that? There is another character at lunch who isn't a voice in the novel, doesn't have a point of view, but comes in and out, and that's Joel, Daniel's ex-partner. Daniel's love of some years, but they certainly hadn't been together for a number of years when Daniel died, but had remained friends and he's close to the family and he's always at the family gatherings as well. Joel is also for this process. So you really have Emma, Joel and Claire on one side and Alison and Bridie on the other. And I guess this is a good place to introduce the idea I said in my introduction is that you lost your brother, Piers, from a brain aneurysm when he was only 39, which is just such a terribly tragic event. I know you've spoken about that. There was a wonderful article you wrote for the Sydney Morning Herald last weekend. How many years ago did that happen? Yeah, thanks, Meredith. Nearly 10. It will be 10 years this June. So yes, a decade nearly has passed. Yeah. Okay. And what was it about your family's story that made you feel or made you want to explore it further in fiction? What was it in particular you wanted to talk about in this novel that was inspired by your experience with peers? Yeah, these things take a long time to percolate, I think, because I just said it's been nearly a decade. And I certainly didn't even, your first reaction when your sibling dies is not, I'm going to write a book about this. So it took quite a while for it to become an idea. And certainly this book is not about, it's, Daniel is nothing like Piers and it's not about Piers, it's an idea. That came about because three years after Piers' death, who the man who'd received his right kidney made contact with my family. Now that's done through what's now called Donate Life. I think it was organ donation Sydney or Melbourne or something at the time but now it's called Donate Life and it's all done anonymously I don't know his name he doesn't know our names he sent a letter to Donate Life and they passed the letter on to us and it was simply a letter expressing his enormous gratitude at receiving Piers's kidney and the amount of change that had made to his life. He'd been on dialysis for many years before he received that kidney. And kidney transplants really are, of all the transplants, some of the most miraculous in terms of a person's life can be turned around in 24 hours by a kidney transplant. From being on dialysis, which is a massive procedure, three times a week, and you feel unwell between dialysis and you are, literally can't go anywhere because you always have to be near a dialysis machine to having a functioning kidney that will start working even, I've been told, even during surgery while it's still being attached and being healthy and completely felt healthy and fit again. And his letter was incredibly moving and it was very important to my family too because you said 39, it was incredible waste of life. Obviously, any death is sad, but a death at a young age of someone who's vibrant and thriving in their profession, he was a Qantas pilot and has the, their life ahead of them, dies of something like a brain aneurysm, which is just out of the blue, couldn't be detected. It feels incredibly cruel. It is. Having that, receiving that letter made an enormous difference to my family to think there'd been something that had come out of it all. My mother and my sister are both doctors and I work in a medical field of, I, I'm a psychologist, but I work in a medical aspect of psychology. And I think 
that was that probably made a difference to us too, all too, that, that this had been achieved. And, yeah, we all found it almost miraculous. I should also say, maybe I don't have to, but my mum was very unwell with cancer that was diagnosed not long after my brother's death at that stage. And we received that letter not long before she died. So I'm very grateful that we got it then too. That said, that was 2016 and I still didn't start writing this novel until 2020. And again, at the time, I certainly didn't think, oh, I'm going to write a novel about that. I think those things just sit with you and sit with you and sit with you and then something else triggers them and they eventually come to the same. Interesting. I think as fiction writers, we're all really cognizant of the fact that it's really important not to be didactic in your writing, not to bang your readers over their head with the facts of the situation. I was curious because you do share quite a lot of really fascinating information about organ donation. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the organ donation people get you on board <laughs> to encourage more <laughs> people to become organ donors. Um, <laughs> but from the writing point of view, how did that, how did you find the balance or was it playing on your mind about I can't beat people over the head with be an organ donor what was important to you about getting the message across but still making it an essential part of the plot not a sort of rusty bolted on kind of concept yep no I know what you're saying and my concept originally for the book was to have far more of the organ donor stories in it and in fact maybe even originally I was thinking each recipient would have a voice or a chapter or a section or something However, I did realise, and it sounds like a terrible thing to say, but I did realise once I started drafting that and writing that, it's going to be boring, which sounds terrible because I do still feel that transplantation is a miracle and organ donation is a miracle. But they're all good news stories and it wasn't going anywhere narratively. Does that make sense? Yeah, because you're saying, um, what so, you, are you saying it didn't give you an opportunity for conflict by telling Daniel died and this person got his whatever, and now they, their life is completely turned around, is a wonderful story, but it's exactly. not a novel. Exactly. It's not a novel. That's right. It's a textbook or it's a, or it's a non-fiction book of essays or something like that. Exactly. What? So I did realise that fairly early on that although I had the research was fascinating and I've always, it sounds macabre, but I've always been fascinated by organ donation and transplantation. Actually, a kidney transplant plays a very important role in my third novel, Into My Arms, and that happened before my brother was an organ donor, so life imitates art. That happened because a very good friend of mine donated, made a living donation of her kidney to her husband, who was very unwell, and that triggered my interest. So that's why that ended up in that book. But getting back to the point, I, look, I certainly found lots of interesting things and I wanted them in there, but the more I started writing, I, and it sounds stupid to say it, but I realised fairly early on, oh, no, this book is actually about the sisters. It's not about the organs. The organs is a, or the, or the organs, the donation is a scaffold that really this book and again it sounds stupid I do all this planning and then I suddenly realize after two months of planning oh I'm actually writing a book about four sisters and once I realized that everything came from there because then the organ donation is important the organ recipients the tracking them down is important but it is background it's not the main thing that happens in the book it's part of what changes the relationship between the sisters but that's not at the crux of it what the book is about I guess it's about these sisters finding their way back to some sort of relationship with each to a closer relationship with each other 
Having said that, though, I was fascinated by the organ donation information that you did share, and we do meet some of the recipients in the novel, which is wonderful. The aspects about organ donation that you hadn't known before you started writing, I'll leave you with this. Did you have to do a lot of research about? There's just fascinating stuff about recipients taking on characteristics of the donor in terms of mannerisms and craving certain foods, even sexual orientation. That blew me away. Were these kind of things that you you researched before you wrote, or were these things that because you've always been interested in it as a as an area that you were all over because I've been interested in it I'd certainly heard that theory of recipients taking on characteristics of the donor so I did a lot of research into that and there is a lot of anecdotal evidence but there's no scientific study and I guess how could there I'm not sure what to think about it to be honest because it is an area that's so clouded with emotion on both sides people wanting to see things I don't know if it's true or not I have a PhD in psychology so I know about proper research and journaled research and there's no there's nothing in the literature that stands up to say that this does happen however there's tons of anecdotal evidence out there so I wanted to allude to that in the book I knew a little bit about that but I really enjoyed doing a deep dive but what I also enjoyed doing a deep dive in, and again, not wanting to sound macabre, but is to how many ways organs can be donated. Yes. Yeah. You think lungs, kidney, heart, you hear all about those. But, oh, my God, once I started researching what can be done, skin, I had no idea about skin, that, that and it can be stored for three years in skin banks that, that's then used. Joints, I did not know bits of bone could be used to create whole new joints. Yeah, no, I found that absolutely fascinating. And certainly there's a there's mention of a hand transplant in the book and, oh, my God, once, and I, and I thought, I wonder if a hand transplant's ever been done in Australia. Turns out one has been done, and as luck would have it, that was done in Victoria, where I live, in Melbourne, and the recipient, it was done over 10 years ago, and the recipient lives in country Victoria, three hours from where I live, and I tracked him down through a local paper and very apologetically asked if I could get in touch because I wanted to talk about it and because I just find that so amazing. Fancy putting someone else's hand onto your body and look, that couple could not have been it. The man who received the hand and his wife could not have been more lovely, invited me to their home. We had a wonderful conversation and I got to look and prod and do whatever I wanted to the hand and ask all my questions. And they're travelling from for three hours to come to my launch next week, which I'm so delighted by, I can't tell you. So they're very excited about it too. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, what I walked away from was thinking the mysteries of being human is what it really said to me too, is that we know, we think we know, you've got, your mother was a doctor, your sister's a doctor, you're a neuropsychologist. You'd think we'd have figured out all this stuff, but yet there's still so much we don't really know at all. Exactly, Meredith, you got it exactly. And look, that's, at the heart of a lot of my writing. That's the area I like working in. I've realised more and more the this the intersection between what is medicine and what is known and psychology, which is my field. And my last book was about post-traumatic stress disorder and I had another book about genetic sexual attraction. And, yeah, these are areas that, that really fascinate me. And my next book is about the same sort of intersection too. I can't get away from these things. <laughs> Someone has to write them. This all unfolds as Claire and later Bridie and Alison begin to meet the donor recipients and they get to see firsthand what a massive difference it's made to the recipient's life. What were you trying to say beyond the obvious of become an organ donor, get your donor card? What Again, without trying to be didactic about it, but in fiction narrative, I read it about is really about the process of grief, not just for the grief of the loss of Daniel, but also that idea of the people who are the recipients have had 
the grief of their, their lost hand or their failing eyesight or whatever the case may be. And I also was thinking, were you also trying to talk about the legacy we leave it, when we die as well? So is it was grief and legacies really important to you in the writing? <laughs> They were, and the other word, grief and legacy definitely, but also healing and how many, how we can be healed, the different ways we can be healed. That was certainly, I do always tend to keep keywords in my head when I'm writing or theme words and definitely healing. Also legacy, I like that you've brought up legacy. Daniel was mad for fame. He wanted to be as famous as Bridie. He always wanted his designs everywhere around the world and he never lived long enough to, he was on the path to achieving that, but didn't live long enough to see that and his legacy becomes the lives he's changed with his organ donation, not his beautiful jackets or his suits or what have you. And I just wanted, again, without being didactic, I didn't want to say what's really important is the way we change people's lives, not the material things. I didn't want to say anything like that, but I wanted it. I wanted the reader to maybe reflect, not even consciously maybe on, you know, our legacy isn't always what we expect it to be. And there's lots of different ways to leave a legacy. Yeah, I wanted that in there as well. Yeah, I thought that came across really strongly. It was really well written. The I love the secondary plot about Claire as well. So we know that Claire spent years in the IVF cycle to the point where it's consumed her life and it destroys her marriage to Sophie because Sophie simply can't, doesn't have the emotional bandwidth to keep trying anymore. I don't want to give the plot away, but what parallels were you looking to draw between the main plot about Daniel's organ recipients and, tr- and the family reconnecting with Daniel through that and Claire's inability to fulfil her greatest wish which, wish, which is to become a mother. Look, again, not wishing to give the plot away and not wishing to hit the reader over the head with it, but I guess when I was doing my planning, I suddenly realised there are other forms of donation, not just giving an organ away after death or having it transplanted. There are other ways to donate your life or your body and I guess we're probably giving it away by talking in circles with this but for want of a better word when I realized that connection it really excited me and I just thought wow this is just another way I can explore legacies healing donation as a gift to donate also means it's a synonym for gifting and I wanted to explore that as well and I was so delighted to be able to make that connection and and that was really important obviously to the the relationships between the sisters as well and I should say and again I just crazy but assisted reproduction is something that also really fascinates me and has been in a number of my books it was in my third novel and it's in my sixth novel that I'm writing at the seventh that I'm writing at the moment so again like transplantation I can't believe we can do this I can't believe we can make life things that you know we can change people's lives so incredibly I've always been fascinated by assisted reproduction and suddenly realizing that was a form of donation as well I really hadn't thought of that when I conceptualized the novel that came in the planning stage and it was one of those eureka moments that helped me tie lots of things together one of those lovely you'd know this there's a lot of hard graft with writing and you live for those moments where you suddenly go, oh, my God, that's how it's all going to work. And you realise that work has been done for you somewhere in your brain. I've always think of Anne Lamott's uh, from Bird by Bird, her story of the creature in the attic who sits up there stitching things together and every so often just opens the trapdoor and hands you something down. And when realising, making that connection in, in, in Claire and Emma's story, relating to Daniel's Daniel's donations too. It was a moment where the trapdoor was opened and I just went, oh, my God, thank you so much. And it was lovely. So, mm. yeah, you know, I enjoyed writing that a lot. Yeah, I bet you did. It also reinforces your, your 
theme of grief, doesn't it? Because what Claire's going been through with all these failed IVF cycles is she's lost, I think it's nine or, or at least. Six. No, four. Sorry, four miscarriages. Yeah, four yeah. miscarriages. But she's been through. Sorry, but she's been through ten IVF cycles. Yeah, which that's right. She's been through ten cycles. Sounds ridiculous, but quite possible. And I know people who've done it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And but it's a different kind of grief, isn't it? When you're when it's just not coming together for you. You know, the one thing she's grieving want. something she's never had, as opposed to grieving brother that she did have. You're right. It's a different kind of grief. But I feel it's. And I don't have enough experience, but I feel they're experienced in very similar ways. I feel, yeah, those griefs both would, are intensely painful. The other important aspect of your writing style is humour. So this people might have gathered from our conversation, this might be a really serious book, and it is a serious book, but you have a wonderful eye for the human foible, I think. And is it from the writing point of view, from the craft point of view, do you do that uh to de-stress the tenseness of the scenes or is it just a reflection of your worldview that if you don't laugh, you cry? Look, I'm not a humorous writer generally. I think I'm funny in texts, but my previous books haven't had any humour in them. And I was delighted when I received the first feedback from, from Penguin when they read this, when my publisher read this book and she said, oh, I loved it. It was so moving and it was funny. And I thought, oh, no one's ever told me my books are funny before. And I was delighted because I don't think I'm a particularly serious person. But I think this one, the humour just look, came through the reaction, the, sorry, the interactions between the sisters. It wasn't planned. I don't think you can plan humour. I was glad it was there because, as you say, a novel that goes on and on about organ donation is therefore talking also about death and surgery and things like that would be a bit grim. So I was glad to hear the humour did come through. But relationships are funny. Sisters are funny and sisters with each other are funny. And I think that's where a lot of the humour in the book comes from, that the way they see and talk to each other, which isn't necessarily the way you talk to other people that are in your life, but it's different. And I'm sorry, you're an only child, so I'm probably beating you over the head with this, but it is, and I only have one sister, not three, but it is different with people you've grown up your whole life with who, who share blood and parents and things with you. And I think that's where the humour comes from, just that knowing. Yeah, it leads me very nicely into one of my favourite characters in the novel, Daniel's Dax and John Thomas. The poor little man gets passed from sister to sister after Daniel dies. Now, I know you've modelled this on Taco, who we know. I have also Taco's a girl. But she is a Dachshund. She is a black and tan. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think it's really, I've always enjoyed following the adventures of Taco on your Instagram page because I know you're not a dog person and Taco has converted you into a dog person. But slightly tongue in cheek, I was wondering how Taco feels about you having such a thinly veiled reinvention of her life story as a character, John Thomas, in the novel. I don't know how she feels, but the... And I'm not sure if you've seen, because you would have got an arc, but I don't know if you've seen the finished copy of the book, but one of the dedications of the novel is to Taco. Yes, I have dedicated a book to my dog, as well as my sister (laughs) and my brother. Taco brings me such pleasure. You're quite right. This dog was foisted upon me. I did not want this dog. My husband and I had always been a firm, no dogs, they make life difficult. You can't go away. They have to be walked. They have to be cared for. And then all of a sudden he jumped shit without telling me and said, Actually, I think we'll get a dog and I'll look after it because he's retired and it'll be the family dog. The kids will look after it. And you know the story, don't you, Meredith? 
when, <laughs> whenever an animal is purported for a family, everybody is going to look after it, but we all know who looks after it yes, at the end of the yes. day. And this dog, I did not want a dog because I knew it would add time to my life. And this dog has waddled, walked, trotted her way into my heart and I couldn't be without her. I wrote a lot of this novel I started and finished in lockdown and Melbourne had, as you're more than aware, had a lot of lockdowns. And uh, we had Tarko well before lockdown. We'd had her for a couple of years. She wasn't a lockdown purchase, but, oh, my God, I was so grateful that we had her when we were in lockdown. One, because it gave me a valid reason to be getting out of the house to walk the dog. For a little dog, she needs an enormous amount of exercise. She walks easily three or four kilometres a day, which is a lot for those tiny little legs. But they're hounds. They're not lap dogs. They like to walk. So I loved having her for that reason. But her companionship has, yeah, I'm a dog person now. I was never a dog person. Now I know the love of a dog. She adores me. I am her person. And we recently went away for three days for the long weekend to Dalesford and we left her with friends, which we rarely do. And the greeting I got on return it was worth going away just to have that tiny little body just contorting in delight and all her vocalization of oh my god there you are again thank goodness my life is now complete yes <laughs> I had to put Tarko in a novel I had a dog in my previous novel the way back a blue healer that became very important to the or quite important to the plot and I hadn't seen that coming because when I wrote that we didn't have Tarko and I wasn't a dog person but there's now a golden retriever in the book I'm writing at the moment who's really important to the plot too, as it turns out. So I've been totally taken over by dogs, so dog novelist. On, on, on a serious note, though, adding Don Thomas, JT, as a character, apart from your own amusement, what did you see as his role in the novel? Like, Why would you put a dog in a novel? What was the point of the dog? That's a really good question. JT, as you say, he has passed from pillar to post. Every one of the sisters has JT at one point. What was I trying to do? Why did I want that? Part of that is the messiness of grief, how things don't all get tied up neatly. With Everybody had good intentions of they, they were going to be the one to look after their, this dog, but for one reason or another, they couldn't. I think it's about legacy again, though, too. John Thomas is Daniel still being with the girls in the book, if that makes sense, and with Joel in, in the book. And He's important to them for that reason, even though, like all siblings, they love him, but they can't manage him all the time. So they end up handing him between each other. And he's also a symbolic of their relationship with each other, of Alison early in the book, just can't, John Thomas has disgraced himself at home and her husband, Jason, is upset about this and says that dog has to go. So Alison doesn't actually check with Bridie. She just takes John Thomas to the restaurant where they're all meeting for Daniel's anniversary lunch and just hands him to Bridie after the lunch and says, here, you have to have him. I can't have him anymore. And I think I used the way that they passed John Thomas between each other to also signify their relationship and how they dealt with and treated each other. So John Thomas was an important device for lots of reasons. But again, he's just also really fun to write. Yeah, so. And a great name too. I think you had a lot of fun with the name too. Where did you get did. the inspiration for the name? I'm curious. That was such a great name. And you play with it really nicely in the novel too. Yeah, and I actually put a post, a, a tweet out when I came up with the name. I said if I called something or someone or a thing a John Thomas, would people understand what that reference was? And about half did and half didn't. I guess it just depends what books you studied in high school or how how well read you are, or if you're British. Or my, my publisher is British, and she said, "I'll take that out. Everybody knows what a John Thomas is." And that's when I went to Twitter and said, 
would you understand? And a lot of people said no. I said, see, it has to stay. Just because you who are British grew up in Britain understand it, not everyone does. I have no, I can't remember where I came up with the name, but yeah, just seemed to Very suit. Good. It's fun. You're on the record as a writer who won't move on. So you, as you've been talking about today, about you're a real planner and you spend two to three months planning your novel. And I understand that the way that you write is that you won't move on from a scene until it's absolutely word perfect, as as good as you can get it at that point in time. And that led me to assume that you couldn't, I edit like that, but I can't write like that. Like when I write, I draft in a big rush. And then it's when I'm in the editing process, it's completely the opposite. It's like, I won't move on until the scene is perfect kind of person. Obviously, we all and different strokes for different folks. So I'm curious, I just want to go a little bit deeper into something you said earlier about what you do when you've got this detailed plan, when you have a better idea in the writing, when you're writing it. Do you have to then go back and unravel stuff and re-knit it? Or what do you do when you go, ah, brainwave, this is a much better resolution or a much better way forward? Yeah, look, I just, I follow it. So I do follow my gut. If something feels right, I'll go, no, that's right. And you'd be the same. We've done this long enough to know that if you feel something in your gut and you go, oh, yeah, that's right, that how that's how it has to be. Yes, I will, if I'm doing that while I'm writing and an idea occurs to me, I will just follow it. I won't, you know, I will deviate from the plan. I'll just go, yes, I'll do this. This is right. I've got to say it doesn't happen a lot, but when it happens, it really happens, so to speak. But then, yeah, then I'll spend a day or two going back to my flashcards and through my notes and working out how I have to integrate this new idea into what I'm going to do and what I've already done. And if it sometimes it doesn't change things, but sometimes it does change things significantly. And then you need to go back to other sections and rewrite them so they foreshadow that or they they've got the thematic link to that or what have you. But yeah, I'm not afraid to I'm not afraid. I love it when because I don't get a lot of ideas. I'm not one of these people who's always got five ideas for a novel in their head. I don't. I get one idea at a time and I have to really like it and make it stick for the two years or so. So I'm thrilled if I get an idea and if it feels right, I will follow it. But then I will go back and do all the pedantic knitting it in, making sure I've bedded it down properly and introduced it properly or what have you. Yeah. And because you write, because you plan and then you write and you write relatively slowly I presume because you make you're finessing as you go when you finish that effectively really the planning phase is really your first draft and this is like the fleshed out version do you then go back and do another structural edit do you need a lot of structural editing in that process or is it like pretty much done and dusted it's off to the publisher it is pretty much done and dusted. Yeah, wow. I run it past. Yeah, I know. And people hate me when I say, like, this book, I'll leave you with this, had a structural edit from Penguin and that was pretty much it. And even the structural edit, my publisher said, that's one of the lightest I've ever done because she does them herself. Not all publishers do that. She says this is, and it was a very light structural edit. It wasn't, there were no tears. and So it's almost a first draft and people hate me when I say that. But it takes the same amount of time. I, I write a thousand words a day in a writing session. I only write two days a week. But that thousand words takes me five or six hours because I'm so bloody nutty about going back and making sure I'm happy with every sentence before I move on. I wish I wasn't like that. I heard a podcast with the very fabulous author, Natasha Lester, recently, who said she drafts an entire novel in 10 weeks. She has an entire novel out there in 10 weeks, but then goes back and does about three or four more drafts. And 
it all ends, we all end up in the same place. Yeah, um, and that's the fascinating thing about it, isn't it? Because I'm like Natasha and, I t- and you're like Michael Robotham writes like you write. Oh, he, I didn't know that. That's yeah, good so to know. Yeah, see, you're in good company. And because I remember him saying, I can't remember what podcast it was, that he basically writes exactly like you do. It's all finessed as he goes and he hands it to the publisher and he does it all in 10 months, which is the really amazing bit because he does a book a year and then he just hands it off to the publisher. And it's like, I hate you. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> as she struggles through the third version of her novel. In the introduction, and you've touched on this a little bit too, you are a working neuropsychologist and so you only write two days a week. What tricks have you learned that keep for you to keep the momentum going when you come back to the desk after that time away? Do you write two consecutive days? What days do you? I try to make it Wednesday, Thursdays. I work in my neuropsych job Mondays, Tuesdays. So I try to make it Wednesdays, Thursdays or Thursdays, Fridays. So yes, I do try to make it consecutive because I think that does help. But look, this is where being a planner comes into it. I, as I said to you, plan all my novels. I know what's going to happen. I write character for each character. I write a two or three page summary where I have their entire narrative arc. And then I break that down into separate beats for each character. So I know what beats I have to hit and what sections. And then I go away and make flashcards of every scene or section because I write multiple and this isn't something we touch on that's fine but all my novels are multiple third person point of view so I always write from in this novel it's four different points of view the way back it was six my next novel it's six so I always write in multiple points of view and then I always make flashcards not always this is only something actually I've started the last this novel so I shouldn't say always but I always know I've plotted out each scene for each character, if that makes sense. So that's answering your question by saying, I know what I have to do every time I sit down at the desk. I know, I look at my flashcard and say, today I'm writing the scene where Bridie has the meeting with the Netflix people, or today I'm writing the scene where Alison meets a hand transplant recipient. I, I don't, I know it's a good trick to leave your writing in the middle of a scene or even the middle of a sentence to keep you going. I don't do that. I write my scenes in, and they're not, not every section of the book is a thousand words, but usually they're around 2000 or so, and I've done them over the two days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's how I keep going, just having those flashcards. And is it a full working day or do you find that you can only really be that focused for a short, shorter period? Yeah. As I said, it takes me about five or six hours to get those thousand words down. But that's also about the time that you don't have kids. My kids are out of school now, but when I was writing when they were at school, that's about the time they're out of the house for school. I went to Varuna on a residency, the, the writer's house in the Blue Mountains earlier at last year. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I'm going to get so much work done because I've got two weeks where I don't have any um, extraneous demands such as school or cooking meals or what have you. But we were talking about it with the other residents about three or four days in and we all realised that you can only concentrate for four or five hours max regardless, even if you've got the rest of the day to yourself, which was good to know in a way and also allowed me to really enjoy my Varuna afternoons by going walking or swimming or what have you. But, yeah, I think four or five hours is probably enough. That said, if I don't get my thousand words, I'm quite pedantic about that. I will go back after dinner. I won't go to bed without getting my thousand words. So I make sure they're done because if I start, I don't write many days a week. I need to. So if I start being slack in those days, it's, what am I trying to say? It quickly gets away from you. I have to be tough and make sure I get those words. Oh, you're so disciplined. I'm so impressed. <laughs> what have you learned? Like, you're a long way into your writing career now. I'm always curious to know. I guess I asked this question because it cheers me up <laughs> to find out what everyone else sees as their strengths and weaknesses as a writer. What do you see? What do what comes really easily for you? I think is a better way of putting it. And what do you really have to, you know, 
gird your loins for, really focus on to, to do well. What's Kylie Ladd good at when it comes to writing? Planning. I'm good yes. at planning <laughs> and I'm good at research because I've got a research, like I've got a science background and Oh, oh, that's a hard question. What am I good at? I'm good at discipline. I'm good at sitting in the chair until the work is done. I'm good at following a structure and meeting deadlines and all that sort of stuff. These are not very inspiring answers, are they, <laughs> Meredith? You're supposed to say I'm, not- I'm really good at dialogue and I'm really bad at plotting or something like that. Or whatever okay. I'm really bad at description. As I said, I'm always being told by, that is something I always get picked up on, please tell me what this character looks like. I know what they look like in my head, but that hasn't made it onto the page. I am not a visual person. I'm not good visually. That's why Instagram is constant torment to me because it's all about pretty pictures and I just don't do. And I love Twitter. I know you're not meant to love Twitter anymore, but I still love Twitter because it's playing with words. And so I'm not good at descriptions. I hate having to write set scenes. I love dialogue. I really love dialogue. I don't know if I'm good at it, but I do love dialogue. And I'm always wrapped when I get to do a section of dialogue. I think you can... Obviously, you say so much in dialogue, but I mean, it's all the subtext. I have so much fun writing dialogue in terms of the subtext that you can create with dialogue, the way people say things, the things they're not saying, the responses between characters to what's being said. I love that stuff. Yeah. Okay. Let's say I'm good at dialogue. (laughs) Do you read it? Do you read it out loud? Is that something that you do to check your pacing and your voices and stuff? I read it out loud constantly. My husband, who is retired and so is often home but not in the room, says some days I just hear a constant murmur from the study. He goes, you're reading for five hours straight. I read every sentence out loud. And it's not something I say I have to do. It's just a natural thing because that's the only way you know if it hits, if the cadence is right and if the sentences are flowing. For me, there's no rules as we've established. Everybody writes differently. But for me, reading aloud is really important. And as I'm writing, I often think, perhaps a little bit ambitiously, but I think if this is ever an audiobook, I want this to sound good and I'll read it paragraph three times and make sure that's how I'd want it to sound if this is going to be an audiobook. The funny thing is I have never listened to an audiobook yet of any of my novels because it's so horrifying hearing your own words read back to you. It's all right when you're doing it, not when someone else is. Oh, I don't even like doing readings at book events. Because you notice suddenly all the things you could have improved on, don't you? Yes. You go, go, oh, what's that adjective going in there? How did that pass through the system? (laughs) Exactly, yes. Yeah. I know, exactly. And so you mentioned you're writing a new book. So do you, it's got a golden retriever in it. How far into that novel are you? It's a three part, like it's got three parts to it. And I've just finished this. I finished the second part of it's a three act book. And I finished the second part just before Christmas have not come back to it because of holidays and now this one being released. A little bit anxious about that because it's due with my publishers by mid-year, but I'm hoping they'll be forgiving because I've got quite a lot of, as when a book comes out, you get a bit swept up in that again. So I don't see myself going back to writing it for another month or so. And that will then be three months since I've picked it up. So those flashcards are really going to have to do the heavy lifting for me. I will have to read over it again, which is something I don't usually. Yeah, but I'm hoping to have that done by later in the year. Fantastic. Through 2025 release, sorry. Okay, yeah. fantastic. Kylie, thank you so much for spending some time with me on the Convo Couch and congratulations on I'll Leave You With This. It's a, such a terrific read as because I gave you a quote for it. <laughs> it's a fantastic novel and <laughs> it's you. really thought-provoking as, as much as it is heartwarming. I think readers are really going to embrace this and I'm not surprised you're getting a lot of publicity events because it's just, it's very unique. I don't think I know any other book that's like it. For the people who are listening in, you can find out more about Kylie on her 
and her writing on her website and find out about her back catalogue as well. So that's at www.kylielad.com.au, including a picture of Kylie and the lovely Miss Tarko, a.k.a. John Thomas. She's also on socials as at kylie.lad, and that's two Ds for lad. And I'll leave you with this. is available in all good bookstores and from your local libraries right now. Thanks very much for coming on, Kylie. Thank you so much, Meredith. They were wonderful questions. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.